Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 4, Episode 4, Spare the Rod, Corporal Punishment in U.S. Public Schools. A warning that this episode deals with the subject of violence inflicted upon children. As recently as 2014, an analysis of federal data by the Children's Defense Fund found that, on the average, one child is hit in public schools every 30 seconds somewhere in the United States. And by hit, I don't mean bullied in the play yard. I mean disciplined with the use of physical violence by an adult member of the school staff. Corporal punishment is defined by the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child as quote, the use of physical force with the intention of causing a child to experience pain so as to correct their misbehavior, unquote. And as of today, it's illegal for schools to employ such practices in 128 countries around the world, including all industrialized democracies except for three, South Korea, Australia, where it's legal in three out of eight states, and the United States of America, where the use of violence by school employees against children remains permitted in 19 states. And in those 19 states reside almost 45% of American school children. Corporal punishment was legal everywhere in the United States as recently as the 1970s, my lifetime, except in one state, New Jersey, which had banned it 110 years earlier. So all of you Jersey haters might want to put that one in your tank. In fact, as late as 1977, only three other states in the Union, Massachusetts, Maine, and Hawaii, prohibited corporal punishment. And 1977 was an important year because of the landmark U.S. Supreme Court case involving one James Ingram. Ingram had, seven years earlier, been a 14-year-old 8th grader at Charles R. Drew Junior High School in Miami-Dade County, Florida. Ingram had apparently refused to promptly leave the stage of his school auditorium when a teacher had asked him to do so, leading to a trip to the principal's office, where the principal, Willie Wright Jr., ordered Ingram to bend over so that Wright could spank him. Spanking, or paddling, was and remains the most common form of corporal punishment in the United States, although, as we'll discuss shortly, it is far from the only one. When Ingram refused, the principal, vice principal, and another adult forced the eighth grader down onto a table. One man held his arms, one held his legs, while Wright paddled Ingram more than 20 times, resulting in a hematoma that required medical attention and which led to a doctor authorizing the child to remain out of school for medical reasons for the next 11 days. Ingram's parents sued the school, but state court upheld the school administration's right to employ physical violence as a means of discipline. In this case and in the subsequent appeals all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, the plaintiff's case rested upon two constitutional arguments. One was the Eighth Amendment's guarantee against cruel and unusual punishment, and the other was the Fourteenth Amendment's right to due process. As you might recall if you've listened to Episode 4 of Season 2 of this podcast, a student's First, Fourth, and Fourteenth Amendment rights in schools are generally curtailed, so the due process argument went nowhere. But 1968's U.S. Supreme Court case Jackson v. Bishop had established that corporal punishment was cruel and unusual punishment as defined by the Eighth Amendment and banned its use in prisons. However, in a four-to-five decision, the justices in 1977's Ingram v. Wright judged that Jackson v. Bishop's decision applied only to prisoners, not being a prisoner convicted of a crime, but rather being a child in the custody of a school serving in loco parentis. 
Ingram's caregivers, and I hope you can hear the scare quotes I'm putting around that word, were not subject to such restrictions. The U.S. Supreme Court decided in favor of the school, and in doing so set the precedent, still applicable to this day, that the federal government would stay out of decisions about corporal punishment in U.S. schools. The publicity of the Ingram case, along with a couple of other prominent examples that we don't have time to detail here, pushed the majority of the states to adopt their own bans on corporal punishment, but more than a third, 19 states, retained it. Those states are, in alphabetical order, Alabama, Arkansas, Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, Mississippi, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Wyoming. Remember, as always, the highly variegated and localized nature of public school districts in the U.S., both between and within the states, does lead to a wide degree of variability in terms of how many school districts actually employ corporal punishment, how often they do so, and just what qualifies as appropriate versus excessive use of force under state laws and school policies. Alabama, Arkansas, and Mississippi report around 85 to 88 percent of their school districts use corporal punishment, versus just a small number of districts doing so in Louisiana, Texas, and Georgia. And of course, there's further variability even within the different schools within all those districts. Furthermore, just what practices constitute corporal punishment can vary. Paddling, as mentioned, is the most common method, and states and even individual districts all have different standards as to what sort of paddles might be used and with what force they might be applied, from the entirely vague Texas code that just specifies, quote, the use of objects and any other physical force, unquote, to a Board of Education policy from Pickens County, Alabama, which specifies, quote, wooden paddle approximately 24 inches in length, 3 inches wide, and 1 half inch thick, that does not have holes, cracks, splinters, tape, or other foreign material, unquote. Beyond paddling, some schools employ restraints, electric shocks, and even the use of chemicals. See, for example, 1995's James v. Trumbull County Board of Education of Ohio upheld the decision of a teacher at Lordstown Elementary's multi-handicapped unit to force a student to consume hot sauce to discourage her from eating things she shouldn't. Modifying student eating patterns, of course, is not generally the impetus for a corporal punishment. Usually it's for some form of disruptive behavior or conduct deemed to be disorderly, such as in North Carolina, where 63% of reported corporal punishment cases involve such infractions. But that still leaves 37% for other infractions, including inappropriate language or use of cell phones. According to a 2008 report by Human Rights Watch and the American Civil Liberties Union, as well as a Duke University Law School study from 2010, students from across America have also been physically disciplined with violence for, quote, being late to class, failing to turn in homework, violating dress codes, running in the hallway, laughing in the hallway, sleeping in class, talking back to teachers, going to the bathroom without permission, mispronouncing words, and receiving bad grades, end quote. A 2016 survey of data from 95,088 public schools in the United States, that's about as comprehensive a list as you can assemble, found that boys, African-American children in general, and children with disabilities were all more likely to be corporally punished in schools than their peers for the same infractions. Again, the extent of these disparities varies depending on the state and the district, 
Boys are, for example, five times more likely as girls to be disciplined with violence in 75% of school districts in Mississippi, Arkansas, and Alabama, while only 20 to 42% of districts in states like Florida and Mississippi show similar disparities. Black children in Alabama and Mississippi are at least 51% more likely to be corporally punished than white children in over half of school districts, while in one-fifth of both states' districts, black children are over five times more likely to be corporally punished. Whether or not you follow the bouncing ball of all those statistics, the bottom line is schools use violence as discipline more on boys and on African-American students in general. The degree to which those differences exist just varies depending on where you are which might raise the question about how school segregation plays into all of this. Remember, even though legally mandated school segregation was outlawed by the Brown versus the Board of Education decision in 1954, just listen to Season 2, Episode 7 to see how schools today remain as segregated as they were in the 1960s. It's not that schools with majority black students are more likely to employ corporal punishment. It's actually more likely to be the opposite. For example, in Florida, white children are twice as likely to attend a school that uses corporal punishment as black students. In Oklahoma, three times more likely. And in Kentucky, seven times more likely. So if black students are still getting hit more often by their school personnel than white students, what's happening is that black students attending majority white schools are the ones getting the disproportionate brunt of the corporal punishment there. Finally, students with disabilities are disproportionately likely to be disciplined with violence, although, once again, that disproportionality does vary by location. For example, twice as likely in two-thirds of schools in Alabama, in about half the schools of Louisiana and Arkansas, and in just 10% of schools in Oklahoma. The weird thing here is that in case after case, courts have torpedoed attempts by parents to sue districts for physically abusing students with special learning needs, by forcing them to first address their concerns via the non-criminal justice avenues afforded by the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act of 1990, or the IDEA Act, which we talked quite a bit about in Season 3, Episode 4. This was the act that was designed to ensure equitable educational opportunities for students with special mental and physical learning needs. A 2009 report from Human Rights Watch and the American Civil Liberties Union found that corporal punishment is often used on children with disabilities as a punishment for behaviors that are a direct result of their disabilities, like a student cursing out loud if they have Tourette's syndrome, or being unable to stop an activity if they have obsessive-compulsive disorder. And since the IDEA Act very clearly forbids punishing students for infractions that stem from their disability, this is the route that many parents are forced to wind up taking if they have a problem with the way the school is disciplining their child. But it's a route that sends them through a lengthy bureaucratic dispute resolution process filled with ambiguities, all of which has to be exhausted before, maybe, the parents can have their day in court. So, yes, corporal punishment disproportionately falls on the shoulders, often literally, of the most marginalized and otherwise vulnerable students. If you're looking for perfect equality, though, there is one rather disturbing aspect of corporal punishment where absolute national equality exists. A 2020 review from the Brookings Institute and the National Center for Safe Supportive Learning Environments found no cases where state laws prohibited the use of violence as punishment for younger children when it was also allowed for older children. That means that, legally speaking, school personnel can use the same methods and intensity of violence for pre-kindergartners as they can for 18-year-old high school seniors. At this point, it's high time to raise the question of, is any lasting harm being done here by all of this corporal punishment? 
Of the 160,000 Samad students who are subjected to corporal punishment in U.S. schools each year, around 10 to 20,000 of them wind up requiring medical attention, according to a 2003 study by the Society for Adolescent Medicine. Beyond that, though, while studies of corporal punishment in family settings have shown it to be associated with higher rates of mental health problems as well as lower cognitive abilities and academic achievement, I really couldn't find data on this when looking specifically at school settings, at least not in U.S. studies. I did find some studies from the mid-20-teens conducted in Ethiopia, India, Peru, Vietnam, and some West African nations, all of which pointed to corporal punishment having predictive effects on later low academic achievement and low self-esteem, although longitudinal data here was a little inconsistent and iffy. So I do invite my listeners to help me out here and pick up the torch with research about the effects of corporal punishment longitudinally in U.S. school settings. Still, even if we just use that Society for Adolescent Medicine's figure of 10%, that's a lot of harm being meted out. What's the justification? Is violence really a tool that creates better behavior and more effective conditions for learning? Well, there are quite a few studies I found that suggested the opposite, that increased corporal punishment predicted increased misbehavior and aggression over time. But even without those studies, you can also look to how states that have banned corporal punishment haven't reported any notable increases in misbehavior and delinquent activity following that ban. So why does corporal punishment persist in those 19 states? And incidentally, in all states except New Jersey and Iowa, corporal punishment remains perfectly legal in private schools. So why keep allowing it? Well, one argument is that the justification lies in the fact that the school is acting in loco parentis. In other words, a parent has the right to include violence as a means of discipline in the United States, and so too can an organization acting in the role of a parent. Indeed, national polling across the 2000s and 20-teens indicated majority support, 60 to 80% in some cases, for the belief that parents should be able to spank or otherwise physically discipline their children if they see fit with support highest in the southern United States, although those same polls saw only half as much support from those same respondents, even in the southern states, for corporal punishment in schools. The school parent parallel's justification also looks somewhat weaker when you look at how some of those states actually have laws criminalizing the very same use of violence by parents and guardians that they permit by school personnel. For example, the legal definition of injury for the purposes of determining physical abuse in the household in some states includes bruising, and parents whose children show up to a school with bruises might well expect a visit from that state's Child Protective Services Agency. But some states, like Wyoming and Missouri, have laws specifically immunizing school employees from liability for those kinds of abuse, excluding school-authorized corporal punishment from the legal definition of that term. In other words, it's not the act of violence that defines the abuse in these cases so much as the party committing it and the context in which it's applied. This can lead to some pretty bizarre and upsetting ironies, as in all states, teachers are mandated reporters. In other words, if we as educators see a child showing up with bruises or other signs of abuse in our classrooms, we face legal penalties if we don't alert Child Protective Services which is what Betsy Martinez, a school nurse in Penasco, New Mexico, did in 1982 when she examined a nine-year-old third grader, Teresa Garcia. Garcia, like Ingram a decade earlier, had been held down by multiple adults after she had refused to submit to paddling as a punishment, on two separate occasions, one for kicking another student and on another for apparently saying that she saw a teacher kissing another student's parent. 
According to court transcripts, the girl had been held up by her ankles and hit so often and so hard that the wooden board had split, causing welts and a two-inch deep cut on her buttocks that left her bleeding, and eventually with a permanent scar. Nurse Martinez testified that she absolutely would have alerted state protective agencies had the nine-year-old girl shown up to school with, with such injuries at the hands of her parents. Yet when Garcia's parents, who had already protested the first beating, sued, the courts wouldn't let the case proceed. Garcia's parents appealed all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which refused to hear it. And try as I might, I couldn't figure out what happened to it after a 1988 ruling let it finally proceed to trial more locally. For another illustration of this bizarre double standard around abuse, in 2008, a father in Kentucky tried to enlist Child Protective Services when his 12-year-old daughter came home from school, having been paddled so hard she had serious welts on her buttocks. The agency examination concluded the conduct qualified as abuse, but when the father sued the school, the U.S. District Court decided against him. Making things even weirder, 12 of the 19 states that currently allow corporal punishment in schools have banned it from all other publicly funded settings that care for children, like camps and daycares. And in all 50 states, it is currently against the law to beat an animal so long or so hard they are injured. Many states, in fact, consider it a felony. But somehow, the use of violence by teachers, administrators, and staff as a disciplinary tool with students during the school day remains a legal and utilized practice with over 100,000 students a year in the United States. In 2019, Democratic Representative Alcee Hastings of Florida introduced H.R. 727, a bill to attempt to end corporal punishment of children in schools by denying federal funding to any district that employs it. But the bill has yet to receive much bipartisan support and seems entirely stalled in the water. Whether that's some reflection of a deep-held support for corporal punishment, or of states' rights, or just of obstructionism, because working across the aisle to pass any legislation these days doesn't win you as many votes as just straight-up trolling the other side, I can't tell you. What I can tell you is that corporal punishment in schools becomes yet another American practice that I have a very hard time explaining when I travel to other countries or otherwise work with my international counterparts. When everyone from UNICEF, the WHO, and OECD internationally, and the AMA, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Psychological Association domestically decry corporal punishment as barbaric, it's hard to explain, much less defend, the merits of using state-sanctioned violence as a means of disciplining schoolchildren. In those conversations, I find myself using the sort of weak, wishy-washy terms of cultural relativism in much the same way that one might try and explain, say, female genital mutilation in some communities in West Africa as, well, you know, a practice that, however repellent it might look to outsiders, is legitimated by the dominant views of the culture itself and who are we to judge, etc. Except, well, I am judging, because I'm an educator and a parent, and my life experiences and moral philosophy seem to line up with the vast majority of those in the world's industrialized nations, and the vast majority of available research. I just can't see corporal punishment in education as anything other than pointless abuse, and I don't think it should be a part, for any reason, of any school's practice. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.com 
ed-infinitum.com and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.